Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. On September 28th, the Center for Constitutional Rights and Allard K. Lowenstein Human Rights Clinic at Yale Law School released a report documenting the U.S. government's use of Special Administrative Measures, or SAMs, a secretive form of extreme isolation in federal prisons disproportionately imposed on Muslims. The report documents the abuses of SAMs, which compound the debilitating effects of solitary confinement and impose near-total isolation. The measures prohibit prisoners' contact and communication with all but a handful of government-approved individuals and impose a second gag order on even those few individuals who can have contact with a SAMS prisoner. The Attorney General has sole discretion to impose and extend SAMS, which can be authorized for up to a year at a time and reauthorized indefinitely. Prisoners have no meaningful way to challenge the designation. Some prisoners have been living under these conditions for decades. Three prisoners inside the King County Regional Justice Center in Washington State initiated a hunger strike on September 29th after being placed on indefinite lockdown without a court order. Supporters have requested that as many people as possible call 206-477-2804. That's 206-477-2804. In order to ask the prison director, Edwin Bautista, suspend this course of punishment. Political prisoner Shaka Shakur, a Wabash Valley Correctional Facility in Carlisle, Indiana, remains under lockdown in a 24-7 camera-monitored cell following an August 31st altercation with a Wabash Valley Correctional Officer. In recent months, Shakur has been a target of harassment from prison staff and administration for his persistent advocacy for his rights and the rights of many other inmates. Charges brought against Shakur for the August 31st incident were revoked and then refiled after prison staff failed to provide any credible evidence corroborating their story. Staff have also backfiled charges on two alleged instances of Shakur threatening correctional officers. Reports obtained by KiteLine demonstrate that no audio recording exists of the alleged threats, nor any witness statements. However, Shakur has been found guilty of both charges and has been sentenced to extended time in isolation units and loss of phone privileges and good time, which under Indiana statute cannot be regained. Supporters encourage the public to call Wabash Valley Superintendent Richard Brown at 812-398-5050 and demand that the assault charges against Shakur be dropped and he be removed from the camera monitored cell. German police carried out raids against 14 apartments and a shop in order to seize cell phones allegedly related to the G20 protests in Hamburg last summer. In response, autonomous organized a noise demonstration outside the Billwerder prison in Hamburg to show solidarity with the 22 protesters who were still imprisoned in pretrial detention. 
This repression mirrors the ongoing sweeps and fishing expeditions directed against alleged participants in the J-20 demonstrations in Washington, D.C. against Trump's inauguration. Immigrants participating in three years of hunger strikes and work stoppages at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, just won a victory. Prisoners' rights advocate Christina Fialho reported that, quote, private prison corporations collect around $165 per person per day from the public. They have immigrants work in their facilities for only a dollar a day at most and cut corners where it matters, such as on medical care and food, and then they send the profits to their shareholders, unquote. A person incarcerated in the prison recently reported that prison officials offered detainees chips or a bowl of soup after they spent several nights waxing the floors. The hunger strike paid off when the Washington Attorney General filed a lawsuit against the GEO Group, a private prison corporation that operates the prison under a federal contract. The Attorney General alleges that the company has made millions of dollars by violating the state's minimum wage law and paying defendants a dollar a day for their labor. Last Sunday, participants joined in the first ever Bloomington Running Down the Walls. Running Down the Walls is a 5K run which is held across the U.S., benefiting environmentalist and anarchist prisoners. It was initiated by the prominent Earth Liberation Front prisoner Daniel McGowan before his release. He ran each year's 5K in his cell inside an infamous Federal Communications Management Unit. This year, Marius Mason, former Bloomington resident and current eco-sabotage prisoner, joined in the tradition. This is his report back. He says, We were able to do a solidarity walk for the Running Down the Walls event. Even though only one of us ran, I was pushing a friend in a wheelchair. We talked a lot about prisons and the role they play in society and about some of the political prisoners behind bars for so many years. We talked about conditions in prison, especially access to medical care, as that is a huge issue here at Carswell which is a medical facility and has a large percentage of prisoners who desperately need care. It was a beautiful day and we had a good walk. I hope that I will be able to get some of the follow-up notes about the events, where they happened, and what was written for them. It's not so easy to feel connected. This month, the Indiana Department of Corrections will be reviewing a provisional ban on all mail correspondence not written on white-lined paper. According to IDOC Director of Communications Ike Randolph, the policy was implemented to prevent the trafficking of drugs in IDOC facilities. The IDOC has failed to provide any data on the use of mail to traffic narcotics in its facilities, so it remains unclear on what basis the success or failure of the policy will be determined. According to the organization IDOC Watch, the mail ban has more to do with the censorship of political materials and the increasing prevalence of the corporation JPay and monopolizing and profiting from mass incarceration. Quote, the ban and rise of JPay services as a means of political repression, as mail and visits can be more easily monitored and intercepted online, in an attempt to limit prisoner support and humanity, as prisoners are already avoid of human interaction. IDOC Watch encourages people to call IDOC Commissioner Robert E. Carter at 317-232-5711 and demand the mail restrictions be lifted. This week is the first episode of several about the intersection of media and prison struggles. 
In January 2015, journalist Barrett Brown was sentenced to 63 months in prison for his role reporting on Anonymous's hack of Stratfor, a private security and espionage company. Today, we're sharing a talk he gave at the Fight Toxic Prisons Conference last June in Denton, Texas. He describes his engagement with Anonymous and the Hacking Collectors campaign against private security companies, alongside reflections on his time in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Here he is. When I started out as a journalist a long time ago, one of the first real pieces of journalism I wrote was about the uh, TDC. Uh, this is back in 2004. Uh, there had been a raid, which is not uncommon in TDC, but in this case, it had been two guards on a female inmate, and there were a recording had been made somehow, I think through the, their own monitoring system, and it happened to make it to the news. It was in the Dallas Morning News, and uh, you know, got a little bit of coverage after that. And so the TDC uh, Board of Corrections knew that was a problem. And at their next meeting, they set about solving that problem, and they enacted new policies that made it harder for inmates to talk to reporters. And uh, so I wrote up that piece and, uh, you know, got my money and afterwards realized, well, what have I just done? Because uh, it doesn't really matter if you have the information. It doesn't matter if you present the information. So I thought, well, this is a small policy journal I'm running for, you know, and I'm doing some other political stuff, and maybe if I keep going, eventually I'll have a larger reach, and these things can, you know, move policy, which is what the role of journalism in a free society is supposed is to be the eyes and ears of the electorate. So I kept working on being a journalist and uh, wrote for a number of publications, which I write for Vanity Fair, The Guardian, Huffington Post, New York Press, D Magazine, a bunch of others. Uh, wasn't working. You know, things, things were deteriorating, it seemed. Uh, and it wasn't just, you know, because I wasn't able to do it. It was because even when the, the great working journalists out there, you know, who were spreading themselves thin to cover what's important, even when they got those stories, it just didn't matter. In 2009, 2010, I got involved with Anonymous. Uh, I've been writing about them because I was interested in mass online collaboration. I've been an anarchist since I was about 13 years old when I read uh, Alexander Berkman and then later uh, Emma Goldman. And so I was involved in that early on uh, and was invited to participate in one of the uh, servers that they used to organize their efforts uh, when the Tunisian Revolution started. There were several Anons who were Tunisians uh, that were active in that revolt. And so the hackers, as well as the propagandists, we worked together to provide what the Tunisian people needed, both publicity in the Western world and studying their case, as well as providing guides to insurrectionary activity as derived from other re revolutions, particularly the last 10 years before that in uh, Ukraine and elsewhere, as well as tools to prevent monitoring by the very active Tunisian online police. We were you know, just doing our thing, uh, doing what one might expect that an American citizen has the right to do, which is to support a democratic revolution abroad. Then it came to light that we were being monitored by a intelligence contracting company led by a bunch of ex-military people called H.B. Gary Federal. And this turned out to be an example of a larger industry that had grown up almost unknown in the last 10 years of companies that now the CIA and NSA and other Alphabet soup agencies here and abroad can now uh, contract out their dirty tricks and black ops and uh, surveillance and whatnot to companies that are even less accountable than they are and who don't have to even pretend to follow the rules 
and who in many cases have very, very impressive capabilities in terms of deception, in terms of disruption, in terms of uh, framing people. And so a dispute arose between Anonymous and this H.P. Gary company over some, this guy was bragging, he identified our leadership. And the next day, a team of anonymous hackers broke into his servers and stole 70,000 emails from his company, putting emails between his company and other companies of that same stripe, his company and the FBI, his company and the NSA, and his company and uh, Google, Apple, and uh, a couple other larger firms that are actually in the national security game these days. It became a big deal just because it was a dramatic hack, and we were well positioned to get these emails in front of the press, and it became a massive story. The guy had to resign. A congressional investigation was called for on the floor of the House. It was immediately shot down by a Republican congressman from Texas who gets money from some of these same companies. Uh, it, was, it was unusual because, of course, this is the Obama DOJ that had turned out to have been involved in this. They had facilitated the uh, connection between Bank of America and Chamber of Commerce and these companies, which, on their behalf, were going to go after Glenn Greenwald, other journalists who supported WikiLeaks. They are going to go after uh, Code Pink, on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce, they prepared a number of slides showing exactly what they would do. They would commit surveillance. They would uh, frame activists uh, with false documents. Uh, just a number of things would be legal if you or I did them. And in fact, which many of our anonymous uh, supporters had been already been arrested for, DDoS attacks. These guys were doing the same kind of attacks that the FBI had kicked in 40, uh, 40 doors in January 2011 alone uh, when a bunch of kids did it. So nothing came of that. It was the same thing as the, uh, the journalism thing. You know, we had exposed, just really by chance, this extraordinary apex of state and corporate power that was engaged in an indefensible attack on not just activists, not just journalists, not just individual people, but on the entire concept of the democratic state. And so we kept going. We had hackers who were capable of doing more hacks and revealing more emails, and we had... Uh, people I could put together to go through these emails and do a crowdsourced investigation, and we compiled our efforts. And in the meantime, the FBI was monitoring us and uh, going to grand juries and uh, eventually secured a search warrant, raided my house. Uh, they threatened my mother with an indictment for obstruction of justice in order to try to get me to cooperate. And then when I failed to do so, uh, you know, I, I threatened them back. And uh, they did a raid on me the next day, the SWAT team was arrested and charged with a bunch of very bizarre crimes. Most of them had they had to drop eventually. So I was facing, in a certain way of looking at 105 years of exposure in federal prison. We had a lot of donations, uh, got some good lawyers, and then they had to drop a lot of these charges. I eventually pled to four years. I didn't mind pleading to the stuff I'd actually done. There were a number of crimes that, uh, you know, they didn't really want to charge me for because it would involve going into things they didn't want to go into. But anyway, so I did four years in prison. I was at a medium in Three Rivers, South Texas, most recently. Got out six months ago. Learned a lot of interesting things, the most important of which is that even when I won the National Magazine Award from prison, uh, from the shoe, actually, for the columns I was writing at the intersect, <laughs> even after I won that award, you know, I thought, well, I've won this award. Now that all the journalists are reading the intercept and they're reading about all the stuff we've documented, all the systematic, not just crimes here and there, but systematic crimes overseen by the DOJ regarding the administrative remedy process, which is your only outlet as an inmate to go to the courts. Uh, you have to fill out forms uh, to sue someone, and the, and the people who you'll be suing get to oversee those forms. That's the administrative remedy process. Anyway, so I figured, hey, you know, I, we really, you know, we're not going to get a better shot at this than really, I think, getting the the criminality of, this, of the prison system, I think, in front of these other journalists. Look, I'm a journalist too. They should identify with me. You know, shouldn't they be worried that, you know, even journalists, superhuman journalists, 
Elite journalists are going to be oppressed, you know. But it wasn't. It wasn't enough. And so now that I'm out, we have uh, something we're putting together called the Pursuant System. It draws upon a lot of the lessons we've learned, and it's a platform for mass civic collaboration. It's going to be introduced over the next year on an invitation basis. You go to pursuantsproject.org. You can see the whole presentation. You can sign up for more information. The system is, is used to create these entities called pursuances that you can sort of develop and evolve and interconnect in different ways, allowing everyone to start with the same agency to organize, and then from there people can make their own decisions on who they connect with and how. Uh, one of the ones we'll be creating and overseeing will be a prison reform project. We've got a number of people like uh, Robert Tynes of Bard University Prison Project involved. Uh, with a lot of inmates that I met who are still in, um, behind bars doing FLA requests. And we're going to be creating a packet to send to journalists that will help them cover prisons better by showing them how they can do FLA requests to get uh, grievance forms to identify what the problems are at prison in their region and how to, you know, which inmates they should probably contact to get more information on an ongoing basis. We're going to show them this is viable, this is something that will be profitable to you, you know, this will be an easy article to write that you might win an award for. Here's how to do it, we're going to make it really easy for you. prison system, the four years I did, I did about six months of that in the shoe. A couple times were for actual infractions. The other times were retaliation for doing interviews. But there's no rule against it. Uh, a few weeks ago, the BOP did rearrest me uh, using the marshal service after having threatened me to not do any more interviews. Uh, I continued to do interviews. They said the marshals arrested me on a false pretext. I did more interviews from the jail unit on over the phone. And then a law firm hired by uh, one of my editors down here uh, threatened them, and they let me out the next, you know, four days later. So, But these are the kind of things that have to be done because it helps to lay clear, you know, I thought I knew everything before I went to prison. Now I, now I do know everything. <laughs> but I got to see how these institutions work and how regular Americans, especially ex-military people, uh, what they will absolutely do, even, even when they don't believe it. A lot of guards are against what they're doing. A lot of guards don't want to put me in, in the shoe uh, because the executive warden is upset because I hurt his feelings, but they will. Uh, and they'll do, we'll find out over the next few years exactly what else they'll do because things are going to get uh, contentious, and that's probably for the best. Thank you. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. 
You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.